The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 161. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Thank you, Sal. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Star Trek movie, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, poor Father Corey couldn't make it for this one. That, that's uh, a loss for him because this is uh, I'm, I'm going to enjoy this one. Uh, yeah, folks, <laughs> on the other hand, he got out of discussing dinosaurs on a spaceship on Doctor Who. <laughs> that's right, he did. It balances out. Uh, folks, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia and uh, follow us on Twitter at SQPN and retweet the show there. And be sure to leave us comments and feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, so let's talk about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. This was the, as I said, the sixth Star Trek movie, the last movie that included the original crew as a whole. So it was set in that period. Uh, and it came out in December of 1991. Uh, Jimmy, can I ask you for a quick a recap of the movie? The Klingon moon Praxis explodes and dooms the home world to lose its breathable atmosphere within 50 years. In response, the Klingons and the Federation begin a peace initiative, and the Enterprise is sent to escort Klingon Chancellor Gorkhan's ship to a peace conference on Earth. But everyone is extremely suspicious of each other as old hostilities die hard. In route to Earth, the Enterprise apparently attacks Gorkhan's ship and the Chancellor himself is assassinated. Kirk and McCoy try to save Gorkhan's life, but they can't and are arrested and charged with his assassination. To get the peace conference back on track, the Federation must allow Kirk and McCoy to be put on trial, and they are sentenced to life imprisonment on the harsh penal asteroid Rurapente though they are able to escape. Meanwhile, aboard the Enterprise, Spock and the crew discover that the attack leading to Gorkhan's death was the product of a conspiracy that is determined to keep the peace conference from succeeding. The conspiracy involves members who are human, Klingon, and Romulan. In its efforts to thwart the peace initiative, the conspiracy will certainly attempt another assassination, this time killing the President of the Federation. Consequently, the Enterprise, together with Captain Sulu's Excelsior, fly to Camp Kittimer, where they, are, where they stop the assassination at the last moment and expose the conspiracy, saving the day and ensuring peace. So I want to talk a little bit first about the behind-the-scenes aspects, because there's a lot that happens. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Behind-the-scenes mm -hmm. of the making of this movie. Uh, it was a tumultuous time at Paramount. To, and, and in the Star Trek production milieu. 
mm-hmm. but one thing Gene Roddenberry was not directly involved in the making of this movie and in fact yeah after, this, after the first movie which he was involved in they kicked him upstairs so he couldn't yeah. directly influence the movies anymore he could only complain <laughs> right and in fact at one point uh who's it Nicholas Myers uh who was Meyer. the mm-hmm. yeah Nicholas Myers sorry Meyer who is the director had it got into a like a, a yelling match with him and you know told him off uh and sadly Roddenberry died before the movie came out and then they they dedicated it to him and I know Meyer felt bad afterward he he did see it 2 days before he died uh, and he gave them like thumbs up upon seeing it and then immediately called his lawyer Leonard Majlis and said he wanted to get 15 minutes of the movie cut out <laughs> that he thought was too militaristic and um then he died 2 days later before it, Majlis could uh, file the motions. Ah, interesting, interesting. So, yeah, there was a lot of back and forth over what the movie should be. Part of it because Final Frontier, Star Trek V, was so bad and flopped so bad that they they almost didn't make this movie. And when they finally got permission, the studio said, you can make this movie, but not for a dollar more budget than we spent on Final Frontier. And, And Meyer... And, and Leonard Nimoy, who he brought in to help write the story, were saying, there's no way we could do that at that budget. And and they ended up going a little higher, but having to cut out a whole bunch of stuff that they wanted to do. Uh, they, they had this whole prelude of you know, with the, with the crew had moved on into their new lives post-Starfleet and then being brought back together and all that sort of stuff. And that all that got, got cut. So there was a whole lot of stuff in in the background Frankly, i think i i don't i don't mind that i think the movie is tight enough as it is i don't yeah. need to see what they were all doing i mean scotty mentions he just bought a boat i don't need a two-minute scene showing me on him on the boat right. to slow down the beginning of the movie right i don't need to see uhura as a radio show host i think is one of, is what she was gonna be no she was hosting a seminar at uh starfleet academy on communications or something well that's what that's what made it into the movie but in the um in the oh. cut sequence, she was going to be a radio show host or something, which was okay. Of, which I guess in the twenty third century should be a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then there was yes, yeah, so there was. There's all kinds of studio politics. You can read all about it online. I, I don't necessarily want to get into all the back and forth, but there was like a revolving door of studio executives that overseeing yeah. it. They also had different premises. I think it was Harv Bennett wanted to finally pull the trigger on the Starfleet Academy idea. Mm-hmm. To, so they could recast a younger group to continue making movies as, with this as the final regular appearance of the main cast. But that idea went over badly, and so they didn't make that. Walter Koenig had an idea called In Flanders Fields, where they bring back every where they have a transition to a new crew, and the new crew, under the command of Spock, I think, gets into trouble. And they've got to bring back the old crew to save them. And all of the old crew except Spock dies. Oh, wow. And, and so they, they didn't make that one either. I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. Because what they did make is, to my mind, the best Star Trek movie that has been made to date. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, now, uh, I accept the rule for the pre-JJ movies of all the... Odd ones are either bad or less good, and all the even ones are good. Yep. So two, two, four, and six are good. One, three, and five are either bad or, in the case of three, not as good. Yes. Uh, but I would still, still kind of on the. I mean, it's still a definite 
downgrade in quality. Right. Two, four, and six are different genres. Two is is a popcorn revenge play. Mm-hmm. Four is a broad audience comedy romp. Yep. And six is an intelligent political thriller mystery. Yes. And two is Nicholas Meyer. Four is Leonard Nimoy. And six is Leonard Nimoy and Nicholas Meyer. <laughs> right. So you notice there's some commonalities there. Yes. It was, in fact, Leonard Nimoy that came up with the premise for six. He was talking about different possibilities. And and as they were now, you have to look at this movie in its time. Yes. And yeah. one of the things that you may not, if you're young enough, you may not appreciate everything about this movie that I do or that others would because we're old enough to remember this period in history. 1991. This, this yeah. movie very much reflects the period in which it was made. We had been in a Cold War with the Russians since 1945, and we grew up, people of my age, with the threat of nuclear war happening unexpectedly at any minute and ending life on Earth, potentially. Mm-hmm. At least that's what it felt like. We were living under a constant existential threat. Now, you didn't think about that every moment or you would go crazy. Some people did go crazy. Yes. <laughs> but it was always there in the background. And so then in the 60s, Star Trek took that and used the Klingons as a cipher for the Russians. Well, in the 1980s, the Soviet Union was heading towards economic collapse, and they were having a leadership crisis, and we came close to nuclear war, and then they had Chernobyl, a nuclear power plant, blow up in 1986 and cause a massive disaster that certainly didn't help them. And then in 1989, the satellite states in the Warsaw Pact that the Soviet Union had created as a buffer between itself and the Western powers, these were states like Poland, Yugoslavia, East Germany, and so forth, began rebelling. And it started starting with protests and lack of cooperation and stuff like that. And kind of the symbol of the East-West divide. Now, Winston Churchill had when the Warsaw Pact formed, said, characterized this by saying an iron curtain has descended around Eastern Europe and partitioned the West from the Soviet Empire. And so iron curtain was a big phrase at the time. And the iron curtain was kind of physicalized by a big wall that they had built through the middle of Berlin in Germany, because originally after World War II, the Western powers had control of the Western parts of Germany and Berlin, and the Soviets had control of the Eastern part of Germany and the Eastern part of the capital city, Berlin. And so you got West Germany as one nation and East Germany as another nation with a divided capital in the middle. But needless to say, people didn't like living under Soviet tyranny in the East, and they would try to escape to the West. And to prevent that, the Soviets built a wall down the middle of Berlin called the Berlin Wall to keep their people in so they couldn't leave for the West. And uh, it was very dangerous. They would shoot people who would try to get over the wall. And it was a very tense situation. It was kind of kind of the neutral zone between right. us and them. 
And so in 1989, the protests got to be enough that people just decided to ignore the, the, the regulations about the wall, and they started tearing it down. And so very quickly thereafter, East Germany and West Germany were reunited to become just Germany again. And that the fact the Soviets were weak enough to allow that gave hope to other nations that were part of the Soviet empire. And so like the Baltic states, like Latvia and others decided, hey, we don't, we're not Russian ethnically. We don't have to continue to be part of the Soviet Union. Let's demand our independence. And the leader at the time in the Soviet Union, a man named Gorbachev, was uh, reform-minded enough and weak politically enough to allow this to happen. And so the, so the Soviet Union started falling apart. And, I mean, not just losing its satellite states in the Warsaw Pact, but the Soviet Union itself started dissolving. And so this did not go without reprisal because there were people in the Soviet Union who didn't want this to happen. And so in August of 1991, there was a coup from military forces in the Soviet Union, and they like shipped, they didn't kill Gorbachev, they shipped him off to like exile internally. He Mm -hmm. was like staying at his dacha, his summer home, and wasn't allowed to leave. But then the coup failed because the reformers in the Soviet Union said, we're not going to comply with this. They were led by a man named Boris Yeltsin, and by by December of 1991, things had progressed to the point that the Soviet Union dissolved completely, and it became the Commonwealth of Independent States, and Boris Yeltsin became the leader, and it ushered in a new post-Cold War age. But lots of people here in the West were really split about this. On the one hand, it looked great, it sounded great, you know, uh, and a lot of people were saying, hey, let's ratchet. We can now ratchet down and mothball a bunch of our defenses. The peace dividend. And we can <laughs> we can have this peace dividend since right. we won't have to be spending money on as much military might now. On the other hand, other people were saying the Soviets have violated every treaty they've ever signed. You cannot trust these people. This is some kind of ploy. Or even if they're sincere right now, it's going to recrudesce into some kind of new Soviet empire, and we're going to get caught with our pants down. So you had all of this tension here in the West, and obviously tension over there. The fall of the Soviet Union was so dramatic. Now, at the time, they had a space station called Mir, which is Russian for peace. And there were astronauts who had left from the Soviet Union and returned to Earth to the Commonwealth of Independent States, their nation fell apart while they were up on this temporary mission. Right. So this was a very dramatic time, and we all lived through this. And Leonard Nimoy, in talking to Nicholas Meyer, said, what if the wall comes down in space? Right. What if we see the beginning of the Federation and the Klingons making peace? And Nicholas Meyer seized on that and said, I know how to do that. And that was the genesis of this movie. And what's interesting is the movie was made before the events of August 91. I mean, obviously, the, the movie yeah. came out in December of 91, but that made it so dramatic because the movie came out is, as the Soviet yes. Union was going through this, this, this nuclear superpower was having a revolution, which it was, I remember, being very scary at the time. Yeah. And, and now some things had already happened, like when Praxis explodes at the very beginning yeah. of the movie, 
That's, that's the analog of Chernobyl. Chernobyl, right. Uh, Gorkhan is the analog of Michael Gor- Gorbachev. Yeah, Gorkhan, Gorbachev. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. clear. <laughs> yeah. And and then we did start having these peace feelers going out between the Western powers, between NATO, led by the U.S., and the Soviet uh, Warsaw Pact. Mm-hmm. So those analogs are clear. But then while the uh, this movie is in the theaters in December of 91, that's when the Soviet Union actually falls apart. Right. I mean, it was so contemporary. Now, a lot of that, looking back, I didn't, I didn't remember the exact timing of how the film, you know, related to the political events. I looked that up. But still, there was so much of this happening contemporaneously. This was very meaningful. And even with now 30 years of distance, because this is the 30th anniversary of this movie, the 30th anniversary year, and I haven't seen it in this movie in years, but it 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 is just to my mind it is the best of all of them now that doesn't mean i w- i would watch it over two or four constantly mm-hmm. i mean sometimes i want comedy and i'll watch four and sometimes i'm in for a kind of cheesy popcorn revenge play and two is great but in terms of the thinking man star trek this is crafted on the writing level even if you don't know the all the history on the writing level this is crafted better than anything else yeah I, I've always been a Rathacon man myself, uh, but I really, uh, I really love this movie. I really do. This is, you know, my my second favorite of them. Mm-hmm. I, 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 st- I still hold Rathacon. I think as an emotional thing, but uh-huh. I really enjoyed this movie because of those elements. Because it's a, it's a sophisticated story, and it, and it just there's some really great moments in this story yeah. as well. Um, I also partially wanted to explain how this how the times in part because people may be today looking at the characters and going, wow, they're kind of really harsh in their distrust of the Klingons. Right. But no, 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 no. You've got today, you've got years and years and years of TNG and DS9 and Voyager in your head where the Klingons can be friends. Right. That was not the case in the TOS era. Right. In the TOS era, they were opponents. And people in 1991 were extremely torn about could we be friends with the Soviets after all this time or not. I mean, we all wanted to, but there was lots of suspicion. And so actually, if you think about Kirk and the gang in terms of their era where the Klingons were nothing but villains, this actually makes sense. Right. And this was... At, you know, came out around the sixth season of of TNG. So there've been a lot of TNG already, and yeah. it 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 puts into canon the events of like because we'd already heard about the Kittimer Accords early yeah. on in T- TNG, and this gives us that story of how did the Klingons in the in the Federation become friends? And you know what that means, Dom? You can totally write a kick butt prequel, <laughs> right? Right? Because that's what this is. Yes, this is a pre yeah a prequel to to TNG essentially. Yeah, it, there's not a problem with prequels. There's a problem with people not knowing how to write them. This was written well. <laughs> right. Well, it, it it doesn't it doesn't come across as a total prequel. Like a this we're we're giving you the whole story. Well, they're not doing the check boxes to tell you exactly it, where the where the dice on the Millennium Falcon came from, <laughs> as if anybody cared about that. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So yeah, this this is how prequels should be done. Uh, 
Also, I would note of all the Star Trek movies, this is the closest to Deep Space Nine in its mm. feel. Yep. And that's another reason that this is my favorite movie because it is the closest it 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 pushes the same buttons that Deep Space 9 pushes. So the cast, I want to mention the cast. So we have David Warner who plays Gorkon. David Warner, it doesn't have a very long time as he he dies in the uh, first act, but uh he he's, he's memorable. He's memorable. He pl- he he's an interesting he's very different from what we'll see later when we see Gowron as chancellor. He's a different kind of Klingon politician, shall we say, Klingon leader. Mm-hmm. He's not quite so I am a warrior sort of sort of person. And that was interesting. We also have Captain Von Trapp as General Chang. I just one of my I think he's one of my favorite things of, of this movie. The Shakespeare quoting Klingon General Chang. It's awesome. And and that is one where my mileage differs a little. I would cite as a writing flaw. I think he quotes Shakespeare too much. I I agree. I think he they even he does. They even hang a lantern on that at one moment where he's ranting Shakespeare over the calm, and McCoy is like, "I'd give real money if he would shut up." <laughs> yes, actually, McCoy has a lot of good lines in this one. They yeah. give they give him a lot of funny lines. Well, uh, actually, the whole staff in some movies they have trouble figuring out what to do with yes. the different crew members because. They, the crew members are not, the actors are not going to show up if they're not given something to do. They don't want to just show up and say, hailing frequencies open, Captain. And, and But in most movies, the in many of them, and certainly in the odd-numbered ones, the plot is so thin that they yeah. don't have anything for them to do, leading to regrettable moments like the Uhura naked fan dance in Ugh. Star Trek V. It was so terrible. Just, just to give Nichelle Nichols something to do. Right. But in this movie... The plot is tightly wound, and that results in all of them getting good stuff to do. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then I, I should also mention um, Kim Cattrall as Valeris. Mm-hmm. There was a whole thing in this where it was going to be Savik who played this part. Yep. But they wanted Kirstie Alley back for it, and she wasn't coming. And there's all kinds of questions well, about why. Uh, in addition. I mean, you didn't have to have Kirstie Alley back because Savick had been played by more than one actor. You could have had Robin, uh, whatever her name was. And for was, some back. reason, she apparently was never considered, which is a shame. But the but uh, Nicholas Meyer, who created the Savick character, wanted Savick to be the traitor, which is what Valeris is. Yeah. And Gene Roddenberry objected strenuously, saying Savick had become this beloved character uh she was a part of the crew now the fans had accepted her he didn't want her being the traitor and nicholas meyer was like i created her i can make her the traitor if i want but (laughs) eventually he didn't and actually that is one that i'm i can see both points of view because i remember these movies when they came out and savik genuinely was warmly accepted by the fans and having her turn out to be the traitor would have been a little bit like Geordie LaForge turning out to be a traitor, you know, in the th- third season of Next Gen or something, you know, right. because she'd been around for years. I mean, even though it wasn't that many movies, there are years between movies, and there had been years of novels and stuff. And the fans really had accepted Savik as part of the family, even though she wasn't in the original series. And so I can kind of see that. And I really like Kim Cattrall as Valeris. I think she's a good character. I think she did a pretty good job. Yeah, I I, I did. I, I, I wasn't sad that Valeris was in there and Kim Cattrall was playing her. Uh, uh, one other interesting 
character note is that, uh, well, I was going to say, Ad- Rene Aubergenois, who plays Odo in DS9, was in this as a uh, as a Starfleet Marine Colonel West. Yeah, who is the assassin at the end, but mm. he's only in the director's cut. His right. his scene his part was small enough that it wasn't in the theatrically released version. So you may or may not see Rene Aubergenois, although he does get a great line early on in a briefing. <laughs> in a briefing to the president of the Federation, the Federation they're talking about it's before Kirk and McCoy's trial, and he's talking about this rescue operation that they're planning to go get him, uh, which the president does not approve. But the president at one point says, well, what if the what if this rescue effort leads to a full-scale war? And Rene Aubergenois, as Colonel West, gets to say, well, then, quite frankly, sir, we'll clean their chronometers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, overly complex. Uh, but, but we also have Brock Peters uh, yes. as Admiral Cartwright, who's one of the conspirators, and he's familiar as Ben Sisko's dad. Right. And also was previously Admiral Cartwright in the pre- two previous movies as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yes, Ben Sisko's dad. But like when he's ranting grumpily about the Klingons, you know, <laughs> in this movie, I, I can't help wanting to mentally splice in dialogue about the state of the gumbo in the kitchen. And <laughs> <laughs> right. So I want to mention an angle that Gene Roddenberry was unhappy with. And this is a, there's a, a he was unhappy with the perceived racism toward Klingons. Um, and in fact, there were a couple of lines that had to be, one was transferred from one character to another. One was sort of said off uh, screen. Like I think it was probably said in uh, ADR, the, 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 in the dialogue relooping. Well, there were two, two that Nichelle Nichols refused to say. Right. There's one where it's um, the, would you let your daughter marry one? Mm-hmm. And then the other line was, guess who's coming to dinner? Right. Which was a reference to the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring um, Sidney Poitier and other other, uh, their faces are in my head, but (laughs) yeah. Um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was a story, uh, a movie, the first major movie to deal with an interracial marriage. Right. And it involved Sidney Poitier, who's a black actor, being brought over to meet the parents of his fiancée in a white family. Right. And uh, you could see Spencer where... Tracy and... Yes. Uh, and what's their name? Catherine Hepburn? Yeah, Catherine Hepburn, and then there's the, the fiancé as well. Oh, I don't... That one... I knew the other two, but I didn't know that one. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, Nichelle Nichols was uncomfortable with this being the voice of this... the racist person in the... in the No, and, don't... And, you know, and, and that's... And I get that. I, I get that, but I also think it's a it's a missed opportunity mm-hmm. because it's the easy thing to do as an actor is say this conflicts with my personal values, so I'm not going to do it. The harder thing to do is to recognize that human nature is flawed. And it's, it is realistic that even after our present problems subside, human nature will remain the same and can reappear in new forms in the future if mm-hmm. we aren't careful. And so actually having, uh, actually displaying the kind of uh, a, what you could consider a racist sentiment 
towards non-humans, even after humans have patched up their differences, mm-hmm. we're still going to have the same nature. And, and so there is the potential for, if you want to consider racism a, an, a form of othering or extreme othering, that potential to, to other people or other, other species, other species yeah. is still going to be there. And yeah. so it would have been, to my mind, art to mm. have someone who is, who, for whom the human history has receded so much that this same thing can manifest towards others without immediately framing it in a historical human context. Right. There's something, there's something elevating about that as a warning yeah. and that this same thing can happen in the future even once we've forgotten our historical differences because that happens all the time mm-hmm. already on earth we nobody i mean it used to be here in america a big deal if you were irish or italian american and it's like there were signs put up no irish need apply and right. things like that and nobody cares about that anymore but there can still be animus towards outgroups. It's just the outgroups change. And similarly, nobody cares in Europe, or here in America anyway, about which tribe of Goths somebody was a member of a thousand years ago. Right. And But still, this is a recurrent problem. And so I think it's it's entirely legitimate for, I mean, People are always praising Star Trek, I think, mis- somewhat misguidedly, for playing cautionary tales about contemporary problems. Well, if you're going to do that, play it. Right, right. Uh, although, I ha- I I do say, think putting the that second line, guess who's coming to dinner, in Chekhov's mouth, the Russian accent, I think, actually, it plays well mm-hmm. in what we were talking about, the political aspect, the political uh, oh, the atmosphere of the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked okay. having Chekhov say that. Um, the other line, which was Brock Peters was uncomfortable with in the Starfleet Council chamber, right. the line where he said, we need to bring them to their knees, which he felt like uh, brought about the ideas of, of uh, slavery. Uh, to, mm. I, I don't think that's as Oh, that's that's obvious. because that was a line in another movie that where that line, we bring them to their knees, was applied in some way to African-Americans. Oh, OK. OK. I didn't catch that reference. So All that right. was an intertextual reference. OK. Um, there was also another line where, which William Shatner was unhappy with the, the, the way Nicholas Meyer handled it. It's in the initial briefing scene where after the meeting is yep. broken up and they've been assigned to take the Enterprise to this to be an escort, Spock is alone with Kirk and, and Spock is saying, if we don't help them, they're going to die. And Kirk heatedly says, because he's thinking about his son, David, mm-hmm. uh, Kirk heatedly says, let them die. And he's really adamant about it. Right. And he in the in the performance, he did a take where he like said the line, but then did his, a dismissive hand move to take the edge off of it. Like he kind of regrets not, saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Or like he's not fully serious about it. And Nicholas Meyer promised him that that would stay in and it didn't. Yeah. So he comes out. across as just coldly let them die. Yeah. And that that's a. It's a bit out of character for Kirk and the, yeah. that characterization. It is, even though they killed his son. And by the way, notice so remember, so we enter, we meet his son David in, in Star Trek 
two. No, Rathacon, right. Right, yep. and then then he dies in Star Trek Three, which yeah. undoes all of the stuff they achieved in Star Trek Two. Yep, you know, which is a mistake. You know, you don't create the Genesis device, and then immediately you can't use it for ever again because it's broken. Right, and you introduce David, and immediately he's dead, and you introduce Carol Marcus, and immediately she's gone, and just three uh, Spock dies, and immediately he's back. That's the one thing they should have done. They shouldn't un- have undone all this other stuff. But just like when they, they... So that was a poor character death from a writing perspective. Just like Tasha Yar was a poor character death mm-hmm. in Next Gen that they then redeemed with um, Yesterday's Enterprise. Well, here, even though killing David in Episode 3 was bad, using his death as a motive for Kirk's mistrust of the Klingons and as a plot point here, where a tape recording of his log where he's talking about, I can never trust Klingons because they killed my son. That is, again, redemptive. Not mm-hmm. in the same way as the redemption of Tasha Yar's death, but it still shows how even when there have been writing mistakes made in the past, you can use them constructively. Right. should mention that um, Merritt Buttrick, who played uh, David Marcus in Star Trek 2 and 3, died in 1989. So uh, he, he mm-hmm. was, uh, it was a, a bit of a posthumous honor for Wait, he put his picture. Play him in both, did he? I yeah. thought there was a shift of actors. No, he, the only shift in that was uh, Savick. He was he was in mm. both. Okay, uh, yeah. So, uh, speaking of that Federation Council scene, there is a great line from Spock there, where because he's the one who introduces the idea yeah. of this peace plan and kind of Shanghai's uh, Kirk and the old crew into it. That's probably an un- inappropriate term of these days, I guess. But he ropes them in sort of without consulting with him, which is a bit of a bad form. Uh, but at one point he says, uh, there's an old Vul- Vulcan proverb, only Nixon could go to China. Which yeah, <laughs> which is great. great. Yeah, I like that one. Um, this, this film also later on has the the even better line, as one of my ancestors said, when yeah. you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth, which yes. is Sherlock Holmes' famous saying. So therefore, uh, Spock is descended on his mother's side, apparently. From Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> or Conan Doyle. Yeah, or Conan Doyle. Uh, now, the, this whole thing of the of Praxis exploding, which is a Chernobyl reference, we, we agree, I think we agree on that. Um, oh, Nicholas Meyer said so. Yeah. It's also similar to the Picard series story of the Romulan Empire falling apart, being destroyed yeah. by a, a similar cataclysmic event. I feel like, and, and bo- in both cases, the science doesn't work. Right. I mean, even if the Romulan star went supernova, it would not bring down their empire. It would bring down one solar system. Yes, they would just move the capital. <laughs> and similarly, here, even if so, if if Praxis is in orbit around Kronos, yep, then it wouldn't cause Kronos's atmosphere to be depleted over fifty years' time. That makes right. no sense. It would either immediately slam huge amounts of particulate matter and meteors into Kronos, kicking up vast amounts of... I mean, it would be a dinosaur-level extinction event. Yeah. Immediately. It wouldn't take 50 years. And it wouldn't bring down their entire empire. Right. They said it's their primary energy production facility. For an entire empire of many planets, a civilization has antimatter engines running their ships. Yeah. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But it's whatever. 
But also, wonder, also yeah. when when Praxis blows up, we get treated to another ridiculously thin two dimensional shockwave that ships just happen to be in, <laughs> yeah. instead of blowing up the way stars really do, which is in three dimensions and in all directions. Right, and the shockwave travels like uh, the the movies. It always bugs me. The movies do a very ter- a bad job compared to the the TV shows for some reason of dealing with. Sp- the the distance in space and the time it takes to cover distance. Everything is within about a half hour travel and about, you know, 50 miles apart. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, uh, another example of that is later when they're on Rurapente and Kirk tells McCoy that I've got a Viridian patch on my, on my, the back of my costume, which I've been wearing this whole time. And they didn't take away from me, even though we're on a prison colony. Yep. Because Spock put it there right before we beamed over to the Klingon ship. And he should be able to detect me two two sectors away. Well, a sector is clearly a measure of interstellar distance in this show, and that would mean that if Spot can depict can pinpoint where Kirk is right now, which he can because we see him doing that from space, from way far away, even from across the Klingon neutral zone. Yep, Viridium must be radiating particles much faster than light. Yeah. Otherwise, Spock's going to wait years to find out where Kirk was years ago. Right. They travel through a wormhole. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's this viridium is apparently emitting tachyon radiation. Yeah. And, the, and killing Kirk in the process. Yeah. That whole the viridium patch thing was like, I, I, could, I could see it. Why don't the Klingons see, see this thing? Yeah. It must be visible to Klingons' uh, visual spectrum. I uh, just, I, I'm willing to give it to this movie, though, just because the rest of the movie is so yes. much fun. Yeah. But do do you feel like the going back to this idea of the 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 uh, enemy empire falling due to a cataclysmic event? Going back to that in Picard was that sort of a I don't know a cheat. Well, I don't mind particularly. I mean, the way they got, the, I, I would do it differently. Yeah, the way they got there though was organic. Mm-hmm. So they decided in next gen that they that they wanted the Klingons to be good guys, that they wanted to show progress. And and they did. And so that was fine. And then they did this as a prequel to show us how it happened. And that was fine. Mm-hmm. And they also, and then they have uh, the part one and part two of unification in right. Next Gen again with Spock coming back. And this time Spock, and this is another kind of interesting layering of the writing, Spock says, the reason I came to Romulus myself is because previously, when I was trying to do negotiation between the Federation and the Klingons, I involved other people like Kirk and McCoy, and they suffered as a result, and I felt responsible, so I didn't want to do the same thing now. I didn't want my cowboy diplomacy to have repercussions for other people if it wasn't going to work. Right. And and so that all felt and and since the Romulans and Vulcans are, you know, genetically related, there'd always been this question of can they reunite at some point. Yeah. And so that was logical. It grew organically. I would have I would have handled how we get to this point differently because a single supernova is not going to it, it will be detected way in advance, right? And you can evacuate your planet way in advance, and it shouldn't bring down an interstellar civilization. So I would have done that differently, but I don't mind them revisiting it. Yeah, I get the uh, that they want that sense of urgency. They want a cataclysmic event that causes them to 
come to the table and have no choice. And it gives a sense of urgency to the whole thing. But yeah, I, I would have preferred that they, they, they did it a little differently. At least they kicked it up to a star instead of just a moon this time. <laughs> yes. I, I have a note here where I, I just want to say I, my favorite star. I know you're not big on Star Trek ships or, sh, you know, ships, uh, science uh-huh. fiction ships. I love science fiction ships. And the NCC 1701A Enterprise is still my very favorite Star Trek ship. I love her lines. I would love to see that ship fly all the time. Uh, uh-huh. I, I was, uh, so I just wanted to say that uh, here, and it's the last time we get to see her fly in a movie. So, uh, mm. so there's that. I, I, it's interesting. Spock has a copy of Chagall's Adam and Eve painting, Adam and Eve expelled from paradise in his quarters. Uh-huh. He says to remind him that all things end. So uh, just get an idea of the four, at least one of the four last things. That he, that also, in that same scene where he's talking to Savik in his quarters, he. Valeris. he Valeris, sorry. <laughs> Where he's talking to Valeris in his quarters, he and they're doing some kind of ritual that yep. involves some kind of Vulcan ritual, which they never explain. They're just doing it. And it's it's kind of nice to see that as an element in their culture, even though they don't explain it. I mean, in fact, it's kind of nice they don't explain it. Yeah. Because as Vulcans, they would just be taking it for granted. We're doing the so-and-so ceremony now. Mm-hmm. But they're they're like Spock is making some kind of tea or something and then they both drink from the same cup and he's talking to her about how he means for her to succeed him on the ship and she says i could never succeed you i could only replace you which is a great great lines from both of them right but then he's also talking to her about having faith that the universe will unfold as it should and this is something that he has come to over a long period of time it because at, at the beginning in at least after the pilot of the original series, Spock is logic, logic, logic. But by the time we hit the movies, he's opened up to this faith dimension as well. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to get her to appreciate that where she's still at the beginning of her Vulcan journey and she's just logic, logic, logic. And he then tells her logic is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end. And I, a little perplexed by that line and the intent behind it because the beginning of wisdom uh, anything that has that in it is a biblical reference yeah. to where proverbs says the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and here spock has replaced the fear of the lord with logic but and you could think okay this is some kind of secular anti-religious edit Except he's doing it in the service of having faith. Right. So it's it's interestingly paradoxical in that way. Hmm. Yeah. And speaking of that that ceremony, some have taken this scene to suggest that there was more between Spock and Valeris than just a mentorship relationship, that there might have been uh more like a like a romantic whatever Vulcans call romantic relationship of some hmm. sort. Um but it's. I don't think it's I didn't born take out, it that way. Yeah, I don't think the text, you know, the the, the movie itself gives us that. I think it's just no, a mentorship. It, it portrays it as mentorship explicitly. Yeah. So let's talk about the the dinner scene because the, the the dinner scene is is actually kind of great. Valeris, mm-hmm. as the bad guy, the 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 mole in, in the, among the crew, she maneuvers them to have. Hey, Captain, there's some Romulan ale on board. That should make things go well. And of course, the yeah. Romulan ale undermines everything, makes them all a little too free with their opinions of each other, and and really 
messes things up. And this is where we get uh, Chang quoting uh, Shakespeare and saying, you've not experienced Shakespeare until you've read him in the original Klingon, which, by the way, has left a lot of fans who have since translated the entire works of Shakespeare into Klingon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know. And, but then we get the, like this back and forth. There's one point where Chang says, we need breathing room. And Kirk says, Earth, Hitler, 1938. <laughs> like, like, oh, like, like they, they have this back and forth of, of these lines. And, it's like, and that oh. was a little that was a little forced because the Klingons already have breathing room. The problem right. is their core planet now has a problem. So that right. was kind of I, 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 I can appreciate that they would want to include that they would want to fulfill, you know, Godwin's law and get a Hitler reference in there. Yep. But um, but I don't think they set it up adequately given what's been established. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, that that was sort of a, a reference to previously where uh, Gorkon says the undiscovered country and Spock. Yeah. Says oh, Hamlet. yeah. No. So the the title of the movie mm-hmm. is also a Shakespeare problem because right. in Hamlet, Act Three, Scene One, the undiscovered country is not the future. The undiscovered country is death from right. who, from which no traveler returns so we've got an abused shakespeare line but i like the rest of the movie so much i'm willing to overlook that yeah yeah also we have a a line that i always find, i always found a little bit cringeworthy in the dinner scene where chekhov is talking about everybody deserves inalienable human rights and as it burr the daughter of the chancellor immediately calls him on it and says inalienable Human rights, the very term is racist. Well, okay, that's kind of problematic for a couple of reasons. Number one, number one, inalienable has nothing to do with aliens. Yeah. Inalienable means you cannot take it or give it away. Right. And and so it just happens to sound like the word alien, but it has nothing to do with aliens. Secondly, human rights by the uh, people did in and were in the 1980s and 90s in the context of the Soviet Union talking about they violate people's inalienable human rights over there so that was part of the language of the day and i can give it a little bit of a pass on that basis because it was what the audience was familiar with but human rights should not be a term in the 23rd century right it should be something else you know, sentient rights or something. And having Chekhov say that, it was sort of a, it was lazy writing because Chekhov wouldn't say it, but we need him, we need him to be called on it by Ezzet Burr, so we're yeah. going to have him say it. Yeah. And she then actually, it also, she then teases out the implications, or one of the Klingons then teases out the implication, the Federation is basically a humans-only club with some exceptions. Right. Which is not really true. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, it's been well established that that the Federation is many more than just humans. But yeah, that was tricky. I I do like after the dinner scene, and actually the the post dinner scene where the Klingons beam back over to their ship. I like. Yep. Because Gorkhan like turns to Kirk and says, "If there is to be a brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it." Yes. And that's a good line. And then as they beam out. All of the Enterprise crew visibly relaxes <laughs> and just in unison. Okay, they're gone. We can relax now. And they're all, and McCoy's like, I'm going to get some coffee. And Kirk is, I'm going to sleep this off. And, and <laughs> yes. they're all 
talking about what they're going to do now that the Klingons are finally gone and the horrible dinner party is over, which is my personal reaction after the end of every social function I have to attend <laughs> that's not a dance. There is an interesting, like, the Yohura and Chekhov note the terrible table manners of the Klingons, and Spock kind of chides them a little bit. I doubt that our own behavior will distinguish us in the annals of diplomacy. You know, that yeah. he, he's, he's critical of them. And and this is another bit of othering that it's like, okay, even on Earth, we have widely separate, widely different table manners. Yeah. You know, if you go to Indonesia, people are going to eat almost everything with their fingers. Right. And that's fine. That's just their way of doing it. Whereas you go to, you go farther north in Asia, they're going to be using chopsticks. You go to the west, they're going to be using spoons and forks. Right. Oh, in some cultures, you're going to have open mouth lip smacking as a sign of appreciation. In others, that's considered rude. Yeah. Already, the, you know, in realistically in the 23rd century, they should already not care about the table manners, really. Right. And that's where we're going to have to stop our discussion for today. We have lots more to say about Star Trek Six, but that'll have to wait until our next episode. Until then, we'd like to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Michael C., Joseph O., Jason L., Keith M., and William M., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. Folks, send us your feedback at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time for the conclusion of our discussion of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Until then, Jimmy Akin, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, you've not experienced Shakespeare until you've read him in the original Klingon. Kapla! Kapla!